Hey, listeners, we would like to thank our Patreon supporters. That is Nick, Matt, Justin, and Sarah. Thank you so much for your money. We're excited for it. And this week, we are going to be dropping the first Patreon-only content that's not in the the What the Hell is a Pastor feed. The episodes of Pillow Talk with Ian and Joe are going to be Patreon exclusives. So you got to sign up for the Patreon to have that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Patrons, if you did not want that, content i'm sorry but you don't have to listen to it it's just it's optional it's there tell us what content you do want for patreon video response (laughs) (laughs) bring it in and let us know (laughs) yeah i mean we and and we might listen just kidding that's a joke that ethan does (laughs) if you want to support us and vote with your money you can do that at patreon.com slash w-t-h-i-a-p that's patreon.com slash w-t-h-i-a-p thanks for your support thanks (laughs) okay to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small-town parish ministry and in PhD work, and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Uh, Ian and I are talking about, apparently, uh, you're you're going to get scammed if you put a picture of your vaccination card on social media. And I'm so you're over gonna it. You're going to get scammed? What? what, what, like, what? Evidently. And, like, it's not just, you know, people sharing memes on Facebook about this. Like, the, the Federal Trade Commission, AARP, the Better Business Bureau are all saying... Doing this, uh, you're potentially sharing identifiable personal information that oh, okay. thieves can use to steal your identity. But like, it's got okay. It's got your full birth date. Fine. Some, but some people have their full birth date on Facebook anyway. Um, it's got your full birth date. It's got uh, like the location that you got the shot. It's got the shot batch. It's got your name. And like out of that, I get like, they also think that somebody could like take your second shot because he's got the, the shot batch on it. Um, I think it's really silly. And also they're like, but they could figure out where you live from the place that you got the vaccine. And I was like, people have their their hometowns where they live at on, on Facebook. Like this is, you're not sharing anything extra with this. Never mind the fact that like, I know people in New York that drive hundreds of miles to go get the COVID vaccine. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, so that's, a, that's what I'm irritated about today. <laughs> I'm so good at irritating Joe right before the podcast starts. <laughs> You're welcome. No, I understand. <laughs> Yay. Uh, so what do you want to talk about this week, Ethan? So I, I well, I'm, I'm up to talking about anything, but I do have uh, some, some updates from my... Um, 
black studies uh, religion and black studies class that i'm taking Ooh. that i think you'd find interesting that i'm yeah. still sort of chewing on so so this might be uh a, a, a academic one uh for me for at least from my side today i think um, that's good yeah yeah i so, um yeah, go for it. I was just gonna say that it's no longer Black History Month, so all of the books that people checked out all month long and never read are now back in stock at the library. So I finally got a copy of *The Fire Next Time* by James Baldwin and uh, the audiobook of *Sister Outsider* by Audre Lorde. So I am just imbibing some good Black thinking content. So I'm ready for that's, it. That's very good. Both of those very very good uh, thinkers. James Baldwin uh, consistently. Um, in particular speaks to me mm-hmm. just because he's sort of a colossal genius mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and and uh so is audrey lord don't get me wrong i'm just not as familiar with her um but but uh i'm sort of every time i read a, a something else by james baldwin for a class or because well, on recommendation i'm i'm always just sort of shocked uh, and i shouldn't be shocked anymore but i'm always just sort of shocked at how um uh, 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 the depth of his talent, mm. like in his ability to kind of use any medium he wants, short story, poetry, prose, you know, it doesn't matter to like get at really, really, you know, difficult things. I, so I, I'm always really impressed by that. There's a short story I read by him. I, I, I have it on my computer and I, I can't quite remember the title. Uh, about a white police officer. It's all done in first person from this white police officer's perspective. And uh, this white police officer is trying to um, have sex with his wife, but he can't get it up without um, imagining beating up black people. Hoof, hoof, hoof. Man. Yeah, yeah. That's pointed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. Uh, and and I read it, and I was like, "Dear Jesus, this is like wow!" Like like it was it was well written, you know. And right. it was uh, very, it was a lot, but uh, this is quite. It's quite amazing. I mean, it's but but like you have that plus essays, you know, where he writes essays. Like like it's just it's just really. I've always loved. It. I think James Baldwin is pretty amazing so yeah yeah and audrey lord's the same way like everything mm-hmm. i pick up of hers i'm just like the it just uh, goes straight into my brain and into my heart and into my soul and it makes me feel like uh the world must change um and i think i like i'm not surprised that that these authors do this it's just that like um how do i want to put it like you would think that these sources of great and important and deep wisdom would be things that like everybody knows and everybody reads and everybody talks about. And like, it's just a part of our education in the same way that I don't know any other big thinker is, but because they are LGBTQ black writers uh, from previous decades, we, they're just not like part of, they're part of the conversation, but like, I don't know. They they still feel very like niche 
and they shouldn't be. And so that's why I think it's surprising that you're like, that, that you come to this and you're like, this is amazing. How does not, how does the whole world not know about it? And like, of course we know how the whole world doesn't know about it, but it just, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on, I'm on the same page. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So, well, and so, uh, so I'm in this uh, black religion and black studies class, which is uh, quite interesting, but I, currently I'm reading a book that class for for this coming week uh on slave religion in the south Hmm. um uh, i've actually read this book before i took a class in seminary with with uh dr beverly mitchell on african-american religious history and this is a text we read in that class um and so it's been good to kind of get back into it It, it's a good text it's just called it's just called slave religion uh, it's by uh, Albert Rabideau, I believe. He's from Princeton. Hmm. Um, and he's a black Catholic from Princeton. And, uh, and it's a good book. Like it's, it's very well written. And, and so, and, and, it, and, and I say that because it's, it's, a, it's a history book, essentially. Like it's Rabideau sits with primary documents, you know, not just, not just narratives, but, but uh, you know, he's reading um uh, uh primary documents from slave masters and from uh philosophers and clergy you know from the day and just just like really crafting uh, a fascinating book about um uh slave religion in all its forms voodoo conjure um you know obviously christianity uh, the influx of black Muslims that that are taken in, you know, and 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 and, and Islam being kind of uh, uprooted in some of that community. Like it's really interesting. It's a good book, and um, quite interesting. And there's a, a, a chapter on conversion that I'm in right now, and and it's it's possibly there. There's about two and a half pages of that chapter that are possibly some of the most painful to read, like as a white Christian person, like, Hmm. because, because it is so um, shameful, like it's the most shameful two and a half pages I've ever read. And it's, and it's just about the beginnings of slave uh, catechism, you know, among, among uh, uh, the, in the colonial era. Of, of this country mm. um, because it got off to a really rocky start up until the great awakening. Oh, and, and so, and so the great awakening, you know, with uh, Jonathan Edwards in through Wesley, um, that's when you see uh, much more fully established, like, like Christian slave religion, mm-hmm. but, but for the first, like, you know 170 years like it was just it was just really bad like there like like there was almost no quote-unquote successful christian conversion among slaves one thing he talks about is um slaves in the caribbean um take to christianity way quicker and that's because yeah and that's because they were all catholic oh 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 okay and and he's and he's like and when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Catholicism is it's it's easy to to for Catholicism to 
connect with um you know african or folk or or pagan traditions and so this is why uh um haitian you know and and jamaican and and um other slaves brought into to even in in kind of latin american areas because they're controlled by predominantly catholic um european countries uh uh there was a much quicker and easier assimilation hmm. um which i find which i which i should find clever and in and in mainland united states um up until like you know something like uh, the the early 19th century there there was really only two states that had catholics in it and it was like maryland and pennsylvania you know <laughs> like, mm-hmm, right and so so and it was mostly church of england or, or other or other protestant groups and protestants hate that stuff <laughs> right and so right. and so those first like 175 years of of slave religion in the mainland in in uh, north america is basically just slaves going no thank you you know <laughs> <laughs> no that's okay but here's here's what makes this embarrassing and shameful um, in these two and a half pages that I'm talking about of the beginning of all of this, you have um, basically England saying, hey, like, like, like big important higher ups in England are, are writing to the colonies and they're like, hey, Spain, France, Portugal, they're all doing a great job at converting their slaves. And this is upsetting because we're England and we need to be doing better at this. So get at it. And so they send clergy in to, uh, to go in and they write to slave masters and, and all of this. And there's some interesting uh, clergy documents of sermons to slave masters about, about caring more about money than about the souls of the Negroes and all this stuff. Oh Which was a little surprising. I was a little surprised by that. I was like, still bad, still very racist, but but a little shocked. Like that, like there was even a couple of clergy who were like, no, they're people. Like you should you should treat them as people. So here is why Ravitur talks about why in these two and a half pages why slave masters had no interest in converting their slaves in, in the colonial period, and it's shameful. Uh, the first interest, the first reason why they didn't want to convert them is because according to British law, um, baptized people could not be slaves. Right. And so they were like, we are definitely not uh, converting our slaves because if they're baptized, what if they try to uh, stop being slaves? And that's unacceptable. And clergy people are like, you know what? You make a good point. And so the first thing that the, that they all did, clergy and slave masters did, was change the laws in the colonies mm-hmm. so that that was not possible. And so they changed the laws in the colonies so that if you were a slave, you know, and you got baptized, don't worry, you know, you're still going to be a slave. <laughs> you, you, you are you are exempt from British uh, from the British rules in this way. But slave masters still didn't care because the other reason why they didn't want to, uh, uh, um, you know, convert their slaves is because uh, it costs money. 
costs money to hire people to come in and, and teach their slaves about the gospel. And uh, that's just not so, uh, religious instruction takes time and that's not time where they'll be working. And uh, and also, and this is what I thought was was quite, uh, quite good. Also, most slave masters at the time gave um, their slaves Sunday off to work their own land so that they could make their own money to buy their own food and clothing because mm-hmm. they didn't want to provide that for them mm-hmm. and they wouldn't have time for them to go to church or learn anyway. Um, and so uh, clergy people are like, some clergy people are like, that's not very good. That's, that's, that, that's bad. G- Jesus probably wouldn't like that. But most clergy people are like, we understand what you're saying. Um, but what if we, uh, what if you just made them work harder? What? Well, then they'll die quicker. Well, what if we got you more women? And so, <sighs> and so they, <laughs> yeah, I know. And so like they, they just sort of super impregnate all these women to make slaves so that they would work harder um, and, and be able to catechize them in, in, in peace. Uh, and, and ultimately it still didn't really work until, um, you know, until the great awakening, until like you, you had these big conversion moments, because then the other, the other thing that, that slave masters were worried about was that they felt that, that the, what, what if the gospel uh, made them think that they were in fact free and, and as good as us and <laughs> clergy people are like, but it doesn't. And they're like, and, and, and the masters are like, yo, I know that, but, but we keep hearing stories of slaves learning Bible verses and then quoting them at us. And so we can't have that, you know, and, and basically that's when they started crafting like the slave theology, right? Like, to, to try to, you know, pre, pre-decided on uh, versions of the gospel for black people. Um, because there was enough people that sensed that, you know, well, this, this, whole, this whole Christianity stuff is actually not very helpful when it comes to, like, maintaining an entire slave population. Um, because, and so maybe it's better if they were pagan, you know, that, then at least they, they, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about the liberation of Jesus Christ. They're just pagans. And it's just one of those things. Um, fascinating and shameful and scary and bad. Um, but like, you know, they, they talk about like Rabito talks about um, questions that everybody had to had to answer were things like, if you make the slaves get Christian married, um, what happens when you separate them in a sale? Right. You know, uh, like, like what happens then? And you have clergy and, and like, and like every single time the clergy are totally uh, awful. Don't get me wrong. But every single time the story is clergy have to have to submit to the will of slave masters. Because that's just how it is. Every time slave masters are like, are like, listen, if you want them to get Christian married, it doesn't change anything. I'm still going to buy and sell no matter what happens. And so, and so if it makes you feel better faster to get them Christian married by all means, but they're not even human anyway. So it doesn't really matter. 
you know, and, and like, and like, that's like, those are documents of people saying that like past some, there was a Quaker and the Quakers, the only people that come out good in this, by the way, are Quakers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like every time. But like, uh, like Quakers are, are like every single time are like, nope, slaves are fully human. They shouldn't be slaves. We should teach them about the gospel. We should totally free them. No Quaker should own a slave. If you are a Quaker and you want to own a slave, you will be excommunicated. Like, like, and it happens like every single time the Quakers are that way. And as a result, that's why there are so few black Quakers. Like that's what Rabito said. There are almost no black Quakers during this time because when the Quakers made it clear what they had, they thought there were laws banning Quakers to be around black people. Oh, and so like it's so like the comp like Virginia law, you know, says that black folks are are at the time black folks are not allowed are not permitted to attend Quaker assemblies, you know, you know, and there's all these different laws set up to, to keep Quakers from black folks. So it's 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 an embarrassing and and it's stuff that like I sort of knew, but to just kind of like read it, I was like, oh boy, like read it from like primary sources and primary documents. You know, mm-hmm. sl- slave master saying, um, uh, I will not allow my slave to share um, in Jesus's feast with me in heaven. Mm-hmm. I will keep my slave in hell before I have to sit next to him, you know, like like and, and clergy are like, oh, don't be that way. And they're like, I am. And clergy and then clergy just go, OK, <laughs> like it's, it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. Yeah, so Ibram Kendi talks about this whole phenomenon, uh, not a phenomenon, talks about this piece of the history and the role of Christianity and all this in Stamp from the Beginning. Um, in, in this section that's on Cotton Mather, bless his withered heart. Um, and so I, I was always really fascinated by this because I am famously related to Cotton Mather. And just like, listen. It, it is a famous thing. It is uh, a famous Joe, thing. Joe is often interviewed about this. In, uh, <laughs> I bring it up a lot because uh, I want to be the next Robley. Um, but so I, I, I am fascinated by how... Um, how Cotton Mather has so many things like he's he's also just a brilliant guy like just real smart and um is like the darling of two important families in New England and in in so many ways like should just get it you know should just be able to go go the Quaker route of like know their people you should free them that this this is the only answer but instead invents these like intricate backflips and new philosophies for continuing to enslave people and this is uh, like it's it's very I mean that's the the argument of stamp from the beginning is the idea that Kendi's working with is that in order to continue to enslave people and put people in these horrible situations we needed to invent theologies and philosophies that would perpetuate this institution uh, because it was more important to have the financial benefit of uh, people being enslaved than treating people as people um, and and that to me is so clear 
like I just I now that I have seen it I can't unsee it and it's Mm -hmm. like you see the million shameful ways it happens like like with these clergy in this situation um and like with the history of the the Methodist church and the Methodist Episcopal church south where like literally we split the church over the fact that somebody did not want to give up his slaves uh did not want to cease enslaving people and um like I've argued with my dad over this so in my brain I'm kind of like thinking through like all those conversations I've had with my dad where my dad really wants to say that um that like well slaveholders have rights too (laughs) you know like wants to be like well it makes total sense why they would invent these these reasons for enslaved people to continue to stay enslaved and have horrible terrible lives like it makes total sense that they would pervert the gospel in this way because slaveholders need to have slaves the economy is built upon it like it's it it's almost like he wants to remove the morality, uh, the the moral obligation of slaveholders, um, and and just say like, well, they're that's the situation they're in. Of course, they're gonna continue their situation. But there's no there's no moment of like, but they're wrong, you know. Like there's no light bulb of like these people owned people and that's bad. Like there's just this continual continuing justification of why these men were allowed to continue to do this. And mm-hmm. I think in the back of his head, he has like George Washington, you know, <laughs> thinking like, right, right. Well, you, right. Like you pick the, domesticated, the great history. Right, right. Domesticated slave owners who that their slave owners is, is incidental to their character. Right. Like, right. Like we're, we're trained to see George Washington as this sort of, hero paragon thomas jefferson's another great example right like thomas jefferson is this american genius you know yeah he owns slaves but that's like but that's like the least interesting thing about him and i'm like well no it's the only thing that matters actually because the only because the only thing that's real is morality Hmm. you know like like the uh, that uh, that's at least what i think i've just given it away folks you know (laughs) (laughs) i've given it away like like that's really the only thing that that matters. The only thing that matters is holiness, you know, and, and so and so. But Thomas Jefferson spoke three or four languages and founded a university and 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 is this is this great American mind. Doesn't that count for anything? No, he owned people. Right. It doesn't count for anything. <laughs> he owned people, guys. You know, it doesn't matter. And I, I... You know, I'll feel sorry for Thomas Jefferson all day long that he was so blind to to the fact that to to the evils of what he was doing. You know, like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, you thought you were you thought that you were doing good things when you really just don't understand the horror that you were participating in. But it's the same thing um, when they talk about uh, men who have raped or sexually assaulted someone, and they're like, but like. Uh, but they they made a mistake. They did this one thing. How like how can they really be that bad? Like th- the motivation behind that is is kind of like excusing your uh, uh, the your potential to do that too, because mm-hmm. it is usually white men, ex- rich white men, excusing other rich white men. Um, I sorry, I have Brock Turner in my head as I think about this. Sure, it's like. 
uh, uh, we don't want to ruin this person's life over this one mistake they made. And everybody is, is um, not the, the someone's worst day is not the definition of who that person is. Uh, maybe. Okay. Sure. Maybe this is a, this is a mistake, but it is a horrifying mistake. And we should right. do everything in our power to want to ensure that this person understands the reality and the consequences of what they've done. It repents and completely reforms from this way of being. And also mm-hmm. we should be doing everything possible as a society to treat this as abhorrent because it is. And yeah. And we look back and we want to to give people who are doing abhorrent things a pass because times were different then. There were abolitionists then. <laughs> the, like, right, right. There were people saying this is abhorrent. It just wasn't the dominant idea. And so we just kind of let these things continue, not just kind of maliciously in pursuit of money. And right. I, like... I feel like a radical leftist every time I talk about this, but I'm, I'm actually just trying to be honest about the situation. Like I'm not, I don't have some weird like cancel culture alternative agenda. Like I don't want to take over the world. I just want people to stop hurting people. And I want us to be honest about that. And uh, that seems to be way too much for people to handle. Sorry, I'm yeah. also thinking, I'm currently rethinking again through my year and a half in ministry and how, <laughs> like, all I was trying to do was just trying to be like, well, the gospel says we should care about everybody. And that means that we have to take steps. And everybody felt attacked. And instead of thinking, why do I feel attacked? They just attacked me back. Not just. These are not terrible people. Of course, they would react this way. But it's it's infuriating. <laughs> It's an infuriating situation. It, it is infuriating. And and like I think what, what makes it even more infuriating for me is when folks respond the way you're describing. I understand what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? Like on one hand, this is sort of the problem with uh, being encouraged to view bad people as like Lex Luthor, right? Mm. A bad person is somebody who takes great delight and glee in, in human destruction. And, and, and so like, not, not to be, belabor the point about Brock Turner, but like, but like, is, does that describe that guy? Well, maybe not because, you know, he did, he did this one bad thing and, and, you know, he, he's not, he's not a Lex Luthor. He's not a, he's not a deranged psychopath. And so can he be a bad person? Listen, guys, I, I understand what we're saying. I, I really do. But but this is what happens when you know when when we've sh- when we set the bar in this sort of fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Um and and people like this guy kind of are able to get away with some something that he might feel bad for doing, but something that he still has not um that justice has not been done for. And, and, right. and that's really the thing is, is people are prepared. And, and this is why this is a, it has a, has a kind of racist bias, right? People are racist and, and sexist bias. People are prepared because of who he is and what he looks like to give him the benefit of the doubt, to care for him before 
uh, we are prepared to care for the victim of the bad thing that he did. Like it, it is possible to to not see this guy as a Lex Luthor and not center at all his well-being in creating justice. Right. And and that's really why and, and people are not really able to um live into that because I just think that people are not trained well enough to live into that. People are being people's emotions are being actively weaponized to, to make it so that they can't do that. Like there's a lot of reasons why that's why that happens. And it's the same with like with your situation at the church, right? Like people are people are are actively, you know, whether by the powers or by, you know, just right wing media or just just <laughs> our culture in general, people are being actively trained to um, resist that kind of thing. You know, and and when you say things like the gospel tells us to care about people, especially vulnerable people, um, what I think people are trained to hear is, but I'm people care about me. Yes. You know, yes, and yes, yeah, yeah. And and like, sure, okay. I hear that. But uh, you know, it just doesn't it just doesn't fly with the gospel. It doesn't fly with the calling of baptized people. Um, but it does fly really, really well with this sort of uh, consolation of uh, um, emotional and cultural and mythological, you know, attacks that, that we as North Americans are sort of constantly being fed and being under this way of, um, uh, which leads me, if, if you don't mind, to don't Sylvia. Mind. Can I talk about this? Because it's so, so Sylvia Winter, we, I've talked about Sylvia Winter on the podcast before, and I finally got to read through Sylvia Winter, some work from Sylvia Winter for this class. This is a couple of weeks ago now. We haven't really been able to, 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 decom to, to you know, kind of decompress about it because I found it, I found it very interesting. Um, so I've said before, Sylvia Winter's sort of big thing. She's this Jamaican um, black feminist writer. Um, and uh, her sort of big thing is this idea of man, right? Mm -hmm. She calls it overdetermination of man. That uh, in the West, there is this category, this, this metaphysical lang linguistic category called man with a capital M. And, and this category um, in Western thinking uh, uh, takes the place of the human. Right. And we're not always we're not always aware of it, and so this is this is Sylvia Winter says in, in this one of the essays that I had to read. Uh, this is, in fact, man is one interpretation among many of the category of the human. However, it disguises itself as the category itself, and then and then we see all other interpretations of man as being subject for debate. Mm -hmm. um, and so it sort of does this kind of, this kind of mind flip on us. Uh, she doesn't say it like this, but it's one of the reasons why somebody like uh, uh, pick random Fox news person can say really flippantly, um, socialism doesn't work because of human nature. And we sit there and I go, what, who, what human? 
whose nature like what are you talking about you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. still that's what sylvia winter would say so Winter would be like i have no idea what you're talking about you know you've you've made an interpretation of the human being and you've declared that it is the human okay so i'm not going to dive into the whole essay but i do want to say uh, a piece that i've been really chewing on and i'd like to know your thinking on it so so how sylvia winter kind of does this work is she she traces um ideas in language um kind of throughout the wet like western thought you know essentially starting with with the medieval with medieval europe um and in one of the essays i had to read the essay is is on 1492 like like what is what is the cataclysmic shift that takes place with christopher columbus and and she she kind of goes through some different things like that and one of the things she does in her work is she, because of this category, this category of man, she talks about how um, language and ideas uh, um, form a kind of continuum and a kind of constant in, in Western thinking uh, to the point where um, even really sizable shifts in ideas don't really crack into the, these uh, uh, ideas and metaphysics and language in the West. So here's an, the, the big example she gives is in the West around 1492, um, there is this notion in Western thought of what she calls the non-homogeneity of the human. Hmm. that some humans are ontologically inferior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's what that, that, that sort of takes place. It kind of comes in and, and, sh- and she sees it um, in the 1492 event uh, as a uh, uh, most manifestly in uh, Christopher Columbus understanding the people that he is encountering the natives that he is encountering as idolaters Hmm. in his, in his work, he calls them idolaters. These are idolaters that he's encountering. Uh, And, and, and he, and she quotes Columbus, like, like she, she makes a claim that Columbus's own primary work is, is really, is really where we can see this. Um, And, and so this non-homogeneity of the human uh sticks around and of and and the way in which it's talked about evolves but it but it sticks around in in western metaphysics and and she and and here's the thing that that she that i that i find really critical about sylvia winter there's two things there's this one and there's one more thing um sylvia winter sees all of this as um sees both sort of theological discourse and scientific discourse as being uh, not nearly different enough to crack into this. Because, so she talks about how uh, the non-homogeneity of the human is, is supported in theological discourse, idolaters, from idolaters we get heathens, you know, for, and so on and so on and so on, you know, and, and, and the way in which it's interpreted theologically. But when we arrive 
with evolutionary science. We arrive with the enlightenment, evolutionary science and all this stuff. We discover that nothing changes. You know, we discover that uh, instead of a theological reason for um, native black, brown, indigenous people's inferiority, we discover a scientific one. And there's this postulate in enlightenment and evolutionary biological thinking about, um, you know, that's where you have phrenology, right? Like when people are measuring the skulls of, of black and brown people and, right. and, and you have this sense of, of man, of, of, of the European as being a biologically superior being, you know, and, and with, with, Full civilization and, and reason faculties and and stuff like that and 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 she kind of goes through how despite this major shift in ideas this idea still sticks around the non-homogeneity of the human being is still present it, 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 you can't escape it and and what i find really critical about that is is uh even though it might have its sort of birthplace a little bit in a theological discourse it is. Uh, it wouldn't go away if tomorrow everybody became an atheist, right? You know, like like for for Sylvia Winter, it's just much deeper than that. It, it it's much it's much um, connect, more connected than that. Um, here's the other thing that I, I found that she talked about in this as well that I found really kind of scary and interesting is is. The other thing that is sort of presented with this sort of non-homogeneity of the human is the non-homogeneity of the human is uh, rests on a foundation in Western thinking that she claims is, is primarily about lines. And, and so there are um, binaries in Western thought that, that stretch at least until the early, from at least until the early mid, Middle Ages. Um, uh, and, and the, the sort of first binary that she identifies is the celestial and the terrestrial. Hmm. So there's the heavenly realm, there's the earthly realm. And, and she traces this binary, the, these kind of meta binaries, um, through, uh, uh, a, a number of things the the terrestrial, the celestial terrestrial binary transforms into the habit the habitable and the inhab inhabitable binary of of like kind of uh late middle e medieval thinking and so there's this idea among um, among like explorers or sailors or adventurers that that europe is the center of the earth and and stuff you know after the you know on on various sides like after the when you get to the waters, we, we are now approaching essentially the chaotic waters. These are the areas outside of God's grace. There is nobody there because, because God's grace does not extend there. Uh, and, and for her, like, like that's the key to the binary, right? The key to the binary is God is here. God is not here. God's grace is present in the celestial. God's grace might not be present in the terrestrial. It's up in the air. God's grace is present in the, in the in, on creation. God's grace is present in 
uh, you know, the habitual, ha, ha, the, the parts where people can live. God, God's grace is not present in the torrid zones and the parts where there's nobody. And, and these sort of meta binaries continue and continue and continue until we reach uh, the contemporary period where, and this is what Sylvia Winter says, says where, where W.E.B. Du Bois names our current meta binary, which he calls the color line. Hmm. Hmm. And, and for Sylvia Winter, this is important because this meta binary uh, like, like the sort of non-homogeneity of the human being, this maintains its, um, its kind of deep uh, um, uh, hold over all Western thinking. And so in the non-homogeneity of the human being, even though we've become increasingly more secular, that's what she would use, the language she uses, even as the secularization of, of discourse and language continues, the non-homogeneity of the human being sticks around. You know, it, it doesn't matter that we're all giving, quote unquote, scientific reasons. It doesn't matter because we still have deeply rooted within our thinking that there are some human beings that are inferior. There is man and the. Oof. Yeah, you can't say we can't say the N word, but I will. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Sylvia, but right. but yes, you should you should definitely bleep that out. That that's it. You know, that that. There's the human being and the not human being, the non-homogeneity of, of human beings. But this sort of meta-binary is the same, is, is the same way. And this is what makes the color line, you know, for Sylvia Winters so important. It's the same meta-binary as the celestial and the terrestrial. Hmm. White means God. Mm-hmm. And now that's something that like we sort of knew, but like, but like James Cone, and so like when J- uh, James Cone talks about like what these things mean, right? Like the whiteness means power. White is a shorthand for power, and that's why that's bad. Sylvia Winter uh, dives into it in a way that's like even underneath Cone. No, you don't. You don't even understand. The very the the color line is a meta binary. It, it, it's a it's it's built into the bones of even Cone's way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I, all- find that, I find that um, uh, hard to chew on because, because she is sort of indicting, in some ways, the entire notion of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boom. That's what I got. That's good. Um, I so so I I have in other circuitous ways come to a like similar conundrum. Um, Ian and I have talked about this too, um, and and Ian is right, um, which will be important as I discuss how we talked about this. So Baldwin also uh, Baldwin does what Combe does. 
where in the fire next time Baldwin's talking about as he's reading the Bible um, as a teenager and as a teenage preacher, uh, he realizes at some point that as he says in, in the book, that the Bible is written by white men, by which he does not mean that like they had white skin color, that they were European, that they use English. He means that uh, they were, they were men in power. They were men who functioned the way white, white men function, the way whiteness functions in like the Cone's understanding of whiteness. Um, and, uh, and Ian had said, Ian had gone to a, uh, a seminar on, um, freeing youth groups from, uh, whiteness, I think is the way that it was put. Um, but like basically how to talk to, how to talk to youths and youth groups about, um, about whiteness that they may not have, they may, they have, may not have seen whiteness the way, because you do kind of have to wake up to the presence of whiteness since it is everywhere around us white people and we get to ignore it often. Um, and as he was thinking about it, Ian said like, well, all of orthodoxy is whiteness. Like, and, um, and I was like, well, Athanasius is from North Africa. So he's not white, but that's the, um, that's also misunderstanding what, like the use of the word white. So Ian's right. Um, it's, it is whether, um, like the, the dynamic as it's set up is whether, um, whether thinking is coming from a place of privilege and dominance or whether thinking is coming from that, that vulnerable place and out of care for the vulnerable. And there's always that strain of, uh, lifting up the vulnerable in, in Christian scripture, in Christian theology, like this, this is always there, but it is not guaranteed to be the main thrust of Christianity because you don't get power that way. Um, and, and I think that that is such a functional, that, that binary thinking of, of black or white, of privileged or not privileged, of in control or not in control, of, um, of the sheep and the goats, right? That is, that is all right. easy to understand and really powerful, right? It's really resonant. It functions, it works, and we will build whole thought structures around it. Even the idea of the holy and the unholy. I mean, that's, that's Leviticus in like two words is just delineating what is holy and what is not. Um, and how to, if you can restore what is unholy to holiness, this is how you do it. Um, and, and I am so like, now that you have said this, um, like now that you've explained how Winters talks about this, um, like I'm understanding that, 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 that binary is, is so ingrained in me, even beyond just like, because a lot of times when you're talking in, uh, in LGBTQ spaces, you talk about like breaking the binary. I mean, even just like philosophically, we talk about breaking binaries and bringing in third options and all this kind of stuff because the binary is usually wrong, but it, it really just is, um, like this fundamental thing in, in European thinking that, and there's no, like it, it's deeply embedded in there. And I'm, I wonder about that heavenly versus earthly or holy versus unholy. Um, I wonder about that binary and I, and I wonder what it means about God because like, 
I'm thinking about like Celtic spirituality where they're, where we talk about thin places, mm-hmm. um, um, which there's a really good podcast called uh, the wintering sessions where an author talks to other authors about uh, uh, being creative in time or like getting through times where things feel dead. I'll link to the episode. Cause she talks to a um, somebody who grew up in Ireland during the troubles and uh talking about going, find, finding those thin spaces, finding those places where like, um, you are not quite within this world. You have reached into a world beyond and they would not use holy, but like, um, Christian Celtic spirituality goes straight to holiness. Um, like I, I think that the binary is, is so easy to bust that we don't always do it. Um, and I do like, I really think, I think that through line is there, uh, between that holiness, uh, and, uh, whiteness. Like, I, I think, I think that's also solid. Um, and I think that inherently when, when we want to, a lot of times we want to do justice work, we want to, um, flip the tables, turn the world around, like turn everything upside down where those who were, who were without power now have power. And I, and that's, but that's not right. That's not, that's not the scripture. The scripture is not the valleys were made into mountains. It is that the valleys and the mountains were leveled out and everything was made into a plain. Um, and, and that, like, that should be our, that should be our starting place. Our starting place should be that there are, there are no inherently better humans, right? No amount mm-hmm. of measuring skulls is going to, going to make one human better than the other human. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, this all, this all fits, I think, uh, I, but I'm not sure what to do with it next. Sure. I, I, and I, I think I'm in the same way. So Vincent Lloyd, um, who I've also talked about, he's the first one who, who I've ever heard of Sylvia Winter from. Like in, mm-hmm. in his book, Religion of the Field Negro, he has a section where he talks through some of what Winter is saying. And one of the things that Vincent Lloyd says is that like Sylvia Winter's work is, you know, around this time, he, he did Religion of the Field Negro in 2018, is, is finally beginning. Sylvia Winter taught Spanish at Stanford wow that's like that's like her that's like what she did but Hmm. she's like this incredible critical theorist you know from jamaica but like she made a living by teaching spanish at stanford (laughs) Hmm. like and so um vincent lloyd is like her her work is finally being um really appreciated among philosophers and social scientists and black studies folks um but it has yet to be appreciated among theologians Hmm. Um, because uh, of what some of the stuff she's saying, like like Sylvia Winter is is um, a, a not only laying at the feet of certain theological thinking many of the West's most enduring problems, but but is also uh, saying that there is something um, amiss about possibly the whole Western theological project hmm, mm-hmm. that, that it is fundamentally flawed sort of from the start. Mm-hmm. Now, now Sylvia Winter 
it might be possible she does this in other essays, but she didn't do it in the ones I've read. Sylvia Winter does not name, say, um, the Cappadocians as a part of this problem. Because for her, they're not the West. Not in the same way that medieval Europe is the West. Um, because I think Sylvie Winter, if, I, if she was here, she, she might talk about the ways in which um, antiquity, even antiquity in the same physical spaces as Europeans, um, is, is a shared space among um, the East, too. Like, like in, and that there are some different kinds of political and so, sociogenetic things going on. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I don't know. But um, I think that I think that if I was trying to develop a theology that took Sylvia Winter's work very seriously, I'm I'm tremendously disturbed by the color line celestial terrestrial line thing. Mm -hmm. I'm really disturbed by that. I'm most disturbed by that. The non-homogeneity of the human is less disturbing. It, 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 to me, not because it's, it's not awful, but because I can, I can more easily look at that and say, well, that is a Christian heresy. Right. You know what I mean? And, and she actually names that a heresy. She, she, she says that, that, this is a, a how did this Christian heretical idea become become orthodox mm -hmm. in the West? You know, because she's even able to name it as heretical. This is this is something that prior to the medieval period, um, we all have our social hangups. Don't get me wrong, but like prior to the medieval period, no um, no baptized Christian would would believe that this is actually acceptable they may think it but they would know that it's not correct rather something weird happens in the middle evil in the medieval period where where people try to make it correct <laughs> you know, through, right right through, through fan fiction right <laughs> through, <laughs> through a number of, of other things um i i'm more disturbed by this color line celestial terrestrial line right because what what are we supposed to do with that like are we supposed to say that god is not holy um or that like holiness isn't real um or or that there is or that there is no division between good and bad like that's don't we don't want to do any of those things um but but i think i think the thing to dismiss is the um the clear by the the clear all of this is sky and all of this is earth all of this is good and all of this is bad um you are good because you are white you are bad because you are black the like that that kind of separation in the binary i think then you have to look for um ways of talking about it, like the spectrum of people um or or going into um going instead of uh oh what do i want to say I don't, 
I don't know because like because we really do want to say that like God God is goodness right God is holiness God is love in its fullest form uh, and that makes God holy God without room for any type of um, gradient um, and but but like that fun- like within this kind of separation between sky and earth, you're stuck with this kind of, there is good and there is bad. And that is there. So if we're going to have a fully completely good being, then there must be a fully completely evil being. And we don't, that that's not something that we want either. Mm-hmm. Um, when really like the, there's nothing holy about the heavens necessarily. Um, like there are fascinating things about the heavens but there's also just a lot of um unfeeling matter in space you know like there's a lot of void um there's and and there's and like not everything on earth is holy is is completely not good it's completely separate i mean like stuff falls to earth from the skies right like there it's always porous um, I, yeah, I, I think what I'm struggling with is that like, I think you can still, and I could be wrong, you can still maintain, um, the complete goodness of God while also allowing for, um, for there not to be a binary, I guess. Um, does that make sense? Does that does that help at all, or is that yeah. did I just talk? No, no, I think you're fine. I think I think that's good. Now, remember, she when she talks of the celestial and the terrestrial, this is this is more like the heavens, like in in the in the Christian sense, right? Like she she's not envisioning like an as, as, astronomy, you know, like the the cer- celestial as the place where God dwells, and the terrestrial as the place where we dwell would be the binary she's working with i i assume you i assume you know that but you you started talking about voids in space and i was like this isn't science joe get it together but 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 that's the in the greek understanding of things where where religion and science are are both together the like the perfection of the heavens and theology go hand in hand and they're inseparable and that's why you end up with like epicycles instead of planetary orbits being allowed to be ellipses right they have to be perfect circles because the heavens are perfect um because that is the difference between the heavens and the earth is that the heavens are perfect in these ways um and and that that idea of the heavens being perfect gets carried forward in the background. And so anytime we're talking about the heavens or heaven or, or like anytime we're talking about the celestial, it comes along with that, that Greek idea that these must, these things must be better because they are, um, because they are, are perfect in a way that like nothing on the ground is perfect. When now that we have come up and now that we know more about space, we know that it is not perfect in the way that it was conceived of. In fact, in many ways, it's horrifying. Like if you're going to 
because that original theological idea of the perfectness of the heavens is so important now that we do not we no longer have that evidentiary proof for this theological idea we need to rethink that theological idea and so like it is in fact science because you cannot just get rid of science ethan it is part of how we think about the world it's just observation and conclusions (laughs) but it's not though that's the thing joe it's not that if it was that, then, well, let me try it again. Like, uh, so for Sylvia Winter, um, she would say that science and theology is the same discourse, mm-hmm. and and that and that primarily it's it's rooted in uh, uh, and driven by the same collection of language games that that you know that one of the other is rooted in. Um, this is why you can, this is why there are still scientists who believe that race is biological. Right. You know, it's the same, it's the same kind of thing, both theology and, and the theology discourse and science discourse are governed by the same Western, uh, uh, sort of meta binaries or, or, or language, you know, kind of game lines that run through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just observation. That's a lie. Any more than theology is just talking about God. We, we all know right. that's not true. Right. You're you know? right. Like, like, now that's not me saying, therefore, we shouldn't get vaccinated. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but what I'm saying, right. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that we can't overcorrect. We can't say I believe in science because science is just bare truth, you know. It's well, that's also bare. not what I'm saying. I know, I know. Okay. I um, know. <laughs> yeah, so, Joe, you're right. I know. <laughs> oh goodness. Um so so what what really bothers you about that? celestial versus terrestrial dichotomy i think what really bothers me uh is she is sort of and she's a good critical theorist in this way she is muddying waters that is usually not muddied so for example it's easy the color line is easy to interpret as a moral problem and it is you know, it, it, when Du Bois says the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, you know, there is a sense in which what he means is society is split. It's, it's uh, morally, ethically, economically, all of the ways it can possibly be split into this, um, in, into white people and black people. Uh, and, and there are a hundred things that kind of spring from that and so it's easy and partially correct i think to see the color line as a sort of a moral failure human beings are are failing to listen to the holy spirit like if i was going to put it in theological terms failing to to be sanctified right well if sylvia winter is correct the Yes, that might be true, but but really the color line is is merely the logical continuation 
of the lines that separate the moral from the immoral. Ah, okay. Uh, and, and, and this is sort of what makes it, a, a, to me, a disturbing and compelling uh, argument, like it's disturbing and compelling uh, point because um, the stuff, the, the logics of naming something divine and naming something profane, uh, it's the same logic as naming something white, naming something black, is what she's trying to get at. It's the same logic. It's, and, and, and so, it's not, it's not like the sort of non-homogeneity of the human where you can say, where, and she does say this too, where we can say, well, that's heretical. It, 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 it's an abuse of, of the logic. It's an abuse of the idea. It, it, it's, it's incorrect. It abuses it. It's, not, it, it, it's flawed. For her, um, the color line is working the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. It's not a flawed version of the celestial terrestrial line, it is merely the next step. It, it's, it's, if the color line isn't working, if, if we wanna say, no, no, the color line is, is a mistake, then, then she's like, okay, well, let me tell you what else is a mistake then, because it's the same logic. It's the same, it, it comes from the same place. The other thing that is a mistake is the line that separates the celestial from the terrestrial the holy from the unholy, the moral from the immoral. It's the same logic. It's the same line. The color line is the celestial terrestrial line. It's not that it functions like it. It's that it is that. Um, what, what is happening is, is that we're, we're locating divinity in different places. Mm -hmm. But it's the same line. And, and like I find that to be... Um, hard to reckon with like i think you can just say and i think that there and if i were to write a thing i, I might say this i uh, i think i would just say that i just think sylvia winter is wrong like i think that she um at least in this sense like i think that she's getting at something but i think that 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 there's a sense in which theologically there is there is something amiss she's not a theologian and so like that's not her fault um you know, I think that it's it's important to point out that she she is not brought up uh, uh, Christian traditions outside of the West to make these claims. Um, you know, because I think that to just sort of say it's Christianity's fault is, I think, difficult. And she's not really saying that. Right. Uh, and so and so there's there's a sense in which there are theologies that disrupt this. Um, which I might lean on, but, but she is, she's not just attacking, she's attacking the entire way Western people think and speak, mm -hmm. you know, and she can, I'm not saying she shouldn't do that, but, but if we are to take that seriously, then, uh, then we are sort of totally unmoored. And that's what she wants. Like at the end of her work, she says, we must develop a new genre of the human. Mm -hmm. It's the only way forward. We will simply destroy the earth. 
unless we develop a new genre of human. <laughs> you know, and and like, that doesn't mean she's that's not like a eugenicist statement. That's a that's right. a our interpretation of the human being man that has dominated us all in the West must be murdered. It must be done away with. We must find a new genre. Um, and I and I think she's right about that. But uh, but but she's she's saying the point of this essay and the point of her speaking in these ways is is she's essentially saying we cannot find a new genre by reforming the old one. Because the entire logics of our thinking are already wrong. Mm -hmm. And so and and and. That might be right, but if it is right, then there are a, a number of things that um, like you and I think are correct that like are now might need to be on the chopping block and things that I really don't think are incorrect. That's all I mean. That's that's really disturbs me because it's a it's a good argument. And uh, and it's not like I'm trying to defeat it. I'm not interested in defeating the argument. I'm just wondering, you know, what what to sort of do with it as somebody who who wants to be a theologian, right? Particularly yeah. somebody who's Wesleyan, who who takes holiness very seriously in particular. Um I don't know. I don't either. I think I need I think I need to work with it more. Um because I think there's a lot here. I don't and I don't know that she's wrong. Um Yeah, I don't know. Um, I would I would need to sit down and think about it more. And probably is this is this an essay and a PDF that you can send me? Yeah, I can send that to you. Yeah, I can do send that. It to you. I would like to read it uh, and kind of work through it on my own. Yeah. Um, hmm. I, I but I also kind of I I am at a point where I'm willing to give up a lot of stuff. I like I'm at, I'm at a place where I'm ready to kind of tear down a lot of stuff that I've built up and try again. Uh, because, um, you know, my faith did not get me through the last crisis. Fair so uh, it, it clearly is not, if faith is supposed to function, it did not meet that function. Um, sorry, I had a conversation with a, a friend who is a, who's a pastor who's leaving um, after her congregation left, uh, uh, left tampons on her desk because they don't think that women should be pastors. Uh, what the hell? What yeah, is, yeah. What is wrong with people? <laughs> oh, they're awful. And they're paying uh, the person who's replacing her. Uh, they're paying him $60,000, which is twice what she made. That's um, absolutely absurd. Right. And so, like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Uh, people are terrible. I, I hate everything. And, but she is really coming out of this with like, with this idea that like, this is all in God's hands and God's in control and um, I, with a kind of like this too shall pass. Uh, and she said, um, she said, it's, I, I am much more effective when I, um, I sit back and listen to people and, and gather information about a situation than when I just tell everybody how angry I am. And I'm like, but I think you should be really angry. Like, I think this is worth telling everybody how angry you are. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I, her, her method of solving the problem was not my method of solving the problem. And I felt personally attacked in a way that she did, did not mean for me to. Um, 
And she's like, but like, I believe that God's going to triumph in the end. So like, what does this really matter? And I'm like, well, it matters. Like, even if I think that like at the end of all things, things will be made right. That does not mean that the wrong goes, should just, should just be something that we accept in this world. I don't know. I'm ready to, to say fuck it to the church as has been documented on the podcast. Um, so yeah, so I'm like, any, like if, uh, if Western Christianity has been so damaging in all of the ways that we've talked about in this episode, um, why not just chuck it? Like there is something wrong at the heart of the, of the Western Christian project and it's everywhere. And I, and I, yeah, it's a thread that's so woven into the tapestry that if you pull it, the whole thing's going to unravel. So let's just unravel it. Like I don't, um, I'm not at a place where I want to fight for it, but I might feel different tomorrow. Who knows? Never know. Yeah. You never know. Well, thanks for listening to uh, my my sort of long rant about stuff. No, it was um, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Can I sign us off? Yeah, go for it. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.